for a really long time, I was a, a staunch defender of brunch, a meal that is much maligned in the food writing world. But I'm changing my tone a little bit recently. I think the best meal, perhaps, of the entire meal calendar is actually weekend lunch. Welcome to the Eater Upsell. I'm Helen Rosner. And I'm Greg Morabito. And today we're going to be talking with Anita Lowe, one of the OG fine dining chefs here in New York City. She is an amazing chef. She wrote a great cookbook. You've probably seen her on TV before, and I can't wait to chat with her and hear her whole story. Me too, but first, Greg, I'm going to need you to define the difference between a weekend brunch eaten at 1 p.m. and a weekend lunch eaten at 1 p.m. A weekend lunch is a service at a restaurant that is perhaps a little bit fine, let's say. Um, I mean, it can be, you know, it can be a a very humble, casual establishment, but there is no breakfast component. Uh, There's not this idea that is where people should go to congregate and meet up with their friends. It's just basically dinner in the middle of the day. Lunch gets a bad rap, right? Like lunch is this very unsexy meal. You know, you eat it at your desk or like you talk to people at a terrible midtown restaurant for some business meeting and on the weekends it's not lunch it's brunch Mm -hmm. so i think you've hit on two really interesting things okay the first is that i just realized for the first time in my entire life any meal regardless of where you are that is consumed between 10 a.m and 3 p.m on a weekend is brunch and somehow in my mind just the word brunch means the midday meal on a saturday or a sunday the second thing is you are totally right The power move when you're eating at a fancy restaurant, like if you're going somewhere with a white tablecloth and a tasting menu, always, 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 without fail, is the weekend lunch. Always the weekend lunch. I'm with you on this. I think think you've hit on something. We need to reclaim lunch. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you can go and have three courses, a two, two and a half hour lunch, let's say, with even a cocktail or some glasses of wine, and then like leave and not have to go to work or not have to do anything... You feel like you own the world. It's so civilized, too. Yeah. There's something very delightfully old-fashioned to me about the classic fine dining, white tablecloth service orientation thing. And Mm -hmm. not old-fashioned in the sense of, like, that's how we ate in the 90s, but old-fashioned in the sense of I watch a lot of Downton Abbey, and that's the service. And that's that's the model that fine dining came out of, was, like, you know, the sort of great houses of the continent in England. Mm -hmm. And... In that era, the midday meal was the really big meal. So it's sort of playing even more into this fantasy of like, I am this noble British landowner and my servants are going to like give me cold pheasant and Madeira. I did not know that, but I'm going to think about that next time I have a luxurious weekend lunch. Yeah. Um, the other thing I might even posit that weekend lunches are perhaps even better than uh, dinner any day of the week. I agree. Because the restaurant, even if it's a really hot restaurant, it's probably not as bumping you know, maxed out, overbooked, loud, crazy, dark, as it will be during lunch. I completely agree. And and dark is key for me because, as you know, I have gone completely down a rabbit hole of only thinking in terms of Instagram. And so lunch speaks directly to my need to perform beautiful photos of food. Mm-hmm. So if I want to go to some really hot restaurant or some fancy restaurant and, like, exclaim to my uncountable thousands of Instagram followers how really awesome my life is, the pictures are going to look a lot better if I go for lunch. Totally. It's all about the performance. 
I also feel like you get really great service during lunch on the weekends. And they're like kind of chill about whether or not you order booze or whatever, which is kind of one of my hangups. I feel like if you go to a hot restaurant at night, maybe it's just psychological, but I feel like they treat you differently if you don't order a lot of you know, alcohol or you don't order alcohol, period. You're totally right. I, I didn't drink for about six months a couple of years ago. And every time I went out to eat, I made a point of ordering bottled water just to kind of signal to the server that, no, like, I'm not trying to save money. Like, I just don't want booze. Or I started drinking a lot of non-alcoholic cocktails, which were largely terrible. I would say, can you make me a mocktail? And yeah. of course, they all thought I was pregnant, which I wasn't. And it becomes weird and awkward, but you're you're completely right. Like, at lunch, you cannot drink or or you can totally drink, like you can drink a ton, mm-hmm. and you can combine the beautiful civility of a really nice lunch at an awesome restaurant with the like complete like fist pumping awesomeness of day drinking. Totally. If you have a few you know things that you're drinking during lunch and you walk out and you're a little buzzed, I mean, that's, you know. That's it, you're done. That's go it. home you're, and take a nap. Go home and take a nap, wake Naps. up. Naps, that's the key. I think we just nailed it. The best thing about the weekend lunch is that you can just go home afterwards and do nothing Mm -hmm. and then continue to have your day. Like you can nap or you can just like sit like a lump on the couch or you can go for a long walk around the city if you're one of those horrible people. But like you don't have to be done. No. You know, perhaps the last thing I'll say in support of weekend lunch, and this is a big one, a really big one to consider if you live in a metropolitan area where restaurants are hard to get into is that it's frequently not hard to get into these very hot restaurants during lunch, even on the weekends. Because people don't think about lunch. They don't even think the restaurants are open. We're ruining it, though. We're telling our <laughs> secrets. It's going to be impossible oh, to get wow. in now that everybody... But I, I'm Never listening. mind. Yeah, listen, don't ignore everything that we said. Don't go to restaurants for lunch. Greg and I are, are going to keep that to ourselves. Today in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by one of the greatest chefs in New York City and the country for that matter, Anita Lowe. Anita has a great restaurant in the West Village that is one of the pillars of New York's old school fine dining scene, Anissa. And she's also the author of a really beautiful cookbook, Cooking Without Borders. So what I want to know, Anita, growing up, were you into food? You know, somebody that wanted to get behind the stove as a teenager or anything? particularly, but my family was absolutely food obsessed. Um, I loved eating. I was definitely very interested in different cuisines and, you know, we traveled a lot. So I just remember being in Scandinavia and wanting to eat deer, (laughs) you know, as like a seven-year-old. Like because it was different. I think it's part of Chinese culture to be food obsessed. Cool. And as a kid, so you must have had a kind of open palate then, yeah? If you were like, cool, reindeer in Scandinavia. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you didn't set out to be a chef from like your earliest age, right? Studied, was it English in college? I I studied French. French. Yeah. The opposite of English. (laughs) (laughs) No, not quite. But um, (laughs) I was down to either being a math major or a French major. And math was going to be really difficult. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this French thing. I was spending some time in France, and that's a food-obsessed culture. I I kind of fell into it. So how do you go from being someone who is really into consuming food to being someone who's really into making it? You go to college, and you're forced to cook for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So that was it? That was the the thing that got you cooking? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we cooked a little bit with my family growing up. I mean, not much I remember like helping my mom you know batter eggplant and stuff like that or we definitely made dumplings as a family but when I went to college you know she sent me off with a whole bunch of recipes like really easy recipes and 
I just really got obsessed with it. And then my sister was going to cooking school in Paris. I followed suit and that was the end of it all. Maybe this is far-fetched, but when I was in college, I studied quantitative philosophy and a lot of like computational linguistics and this sort of like math and French languages and patterns. For me, the thing that got me into food was, was studying recipes as a form of computational language. Cool. And I, I, fun fact about Helen, I'm like the hugest nerd. Um, I love that. That makes me think of, uh, you know, like Russell Crowe, like writing equations on a pane of window or whatever. Yeah, no, it was not me. I mean, I was not that cool. I was like Googling recipes and, and thinking about, well, if you think about a recipe as like a written piece of information, I mean, you can write it in a beautiful literary way, but it really is. It's just like a series of inputs and outputs. It's a function. Right. And like the, the processing element for the function is just like the human body. You know, you reach for the salt and you measure out a certain amount of it. So I've always felt like there is this sort of beautiful inherent connection between math and cooking. This may just be a generalization. This is a generalization. But, you know, you're into the finite. You're into being very exact about things. And cooking, professionally at least, requires that. What's your favorite place to buy food? Or oh, gosh. Favorite type of food shopping? No, just really anything. I mean, when I was a kid, even when we were older, when my parents would come to town, we would go over to what was then called Yaohan, which is now called Mitsua in New Jersey, just to go to that big Japanese grocery store. Like that was our sightseeing for the day. <laughs> and New York is great for this. Like in a lot of big cities too, you have these these massive sort of suburban style grocery stores that feel almost like they were picked up and dropped in from another country. And yeah, I love it, those. Yeah. And it's so amazing. I mean, it's not just like going to the little corner tea shop that's Japanese and has those great little sort of spongy bread Japanese sandwiches. It's 5,000 square foot of stepping into Japan and there's like 470 types of rice cooker and yeah, I love that. <laughs> what was your first like professional job cooking? As soon as I graduated from college, I went to work at Boulay. I had wanted to go work in a French restaurant. I mean, that was the it thing at the time. Mm-hmm. What year was this? Like 1980s? No, 1988. Yeah. Yeah. That was like peak Boulay. I mean, that yes. was... That restaurant was essential. It was, it was coming. Yeah. it was coming up at that point. Tribeca uh, was on the map at that point. And yes. Then... What kind of food was was he making then? This was like you know the late eighties. I mean, I when I worked the lunch shift, we were making things like goat cheese salads mm. with cotton de chavignol, the little cheese knobs of goat cheese on little toast with mesclun. Like mesclun was new then. Um, <laughs> and fancy. We were making duck salads with raspberry vinaigrette. Oh, wow. Yeah. For me, like red pepper coulis just screams the 90s. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> it kind of blows my mind to hear that Boulay was serving some late 80s, early 90s hits. You yeah. know, did they originate there? Were they just, was it just something that was in the air? Or? I mean, a lot of things did originate there, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's always said he's not out to like recreate the wheel. So. Yeah. What's amazing is that that food is, is finally starting to come back. I think there was <laughs> this period where, where like arugula was the public enemy number one on a menu and arugula salads with strawberries and then were like goat cheese on, right. on crude or something. <laughs> was like, oh my God, is this restaurant really, ser- like are we at a, a terrible wedding in like a tiny, terrible right, city? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and now these flavors, which were these kind of incredible Mediterranean-ish kind of inspired things are now starting to come back. Maybe that's a a great restaurant concept for New York is like wedding in a small town, (laughs) but like actually very good or something. Like really good small town wedding catering. But that is what this food of the late 80s and early 90s was. I mean, that's the trickle down effect. It's, it's, you know, 25 years later, it's the height of fashion. Well, we did it well at Boulay, I have to say. Like, you know, I wouldn't mind eating that. 
It's mm-hmm. delicious. Yeah, it's I mean, totally it just, delicious. Old, you know, old fashioned food is great as long as it's well prepared. So and, that, yeah. that place was hot back then, and I'm assuming you worked there probably when it had four stars, right? Was it a? No, I think we had two at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, I believe we had two at the time, and um, I believe they got four after I left. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you didn't read anything into that. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. Yeah. <laughs> so where did you go after Belay? Um, I went back to France. Um, actually, I got my degree after our, after Boulay. Oh, your cooking degree or your yeah, my cooking okay. degree. Yeah. What's your new Paris? Oh, I can't. Well, I'm going to Israel um, next month, which I'm really excited about. Uh, uh, I'm going to India in September. I'm very excited about that wow. as well. So both for just like eating your way through the. Well, um, Israel is about eating my way through. The <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm cooking for a charity in India. Have you been to India before? No, I've never been. So I'm really excited. And it's great. I think I love doing these things where I, I'm cooking there because I, you get to see a different part of, you know, you get to see it from the inside. As opposed to just sort of being on the tour bus. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Getting the, the sort of sanitized, curated view of the culture. Yeah. Are you going to like go, you know, buy your ingredients and do your thing? I'm not quite sure. I think we're, we're probably cooking in a hotel. But um, I think I'm cooking in both Mumbai and Delhi, nothing settled yet. The food that you cook in Anissa is, is very informed by that classical French technique. Sure. I feel like I would hesitate to describe it as French food. Oh, not at all, yeah. How would you describe it? I, I mean, I call it contemporary American. I bring in influences from all over the world. I have a multicultural upbringing myself, so that's who I am, and that's what comes across on the plate, I believe. Have you found that, that as your sort of a, attention to various parts of the world has shifted the menu at Anissa has kind of followed suit. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I've always been really interested in Japanese cuisine. So there's a lot of that on the menu. So what was like the impetus behind that restaurant? What was the conversation you had that we're going to do this restaurant in this location and it's going to be like this? Like, how did it come together? I had been cooking at Morezi mm-hmm. and it was just difficult. Owners were great people, but they, you know, it was, a, it was owned by a very large corporation that didn't really understand high-end New York restaurants. Mm-hmm. Or at least they hired somebody that was new at this. And I think we, we just had an identity problem. And the owners wanted certain things, and everybody else wanted different things. And at that point, I just needed... I never really wanted my own restaurant because it looks insane. Uh-huh. And it is insane. Um, <laughs> you were smart. Yeah, it's just like, you know, if, if you don't need to do that, why would you do that? But the, the, why you need to do it is because I needed um, creative control. And 50 Seats is a great way to actually control the quality and to still have your hand in the food. That's awesome. So you knew 50 seats is about what you could do and and still do something that was like personal and creative? Is that, was that the idea? or? Yeah, I guess. And, you know, I, I had worked at Chanterelle, mm-hmm. um, which was also a 50-seat restaurant, and that was comfortable to me. So and that was where I, I had spent most of my time cooking. I was very influenced by that. Oh, Why Barrow Street? Why the West? It's on Barrow Street, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I live in the West Village. Um, I love the West Village. I we had been looking at a lot of different spaces. When we first saw it, I really kind of hated it. But my then partner, Jen, was an interior designer. And she did a layout that's amazing. I was like, okay, well, you can fix this thing. Because it just seemed all wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but she really fixed it. And it's just beautiful because you know we've got the um, waiter station in an area where the customers can't really see it. The dining room's elevated. Like I thought just that was brilliant. And I was like, okay, yes, this is the place to do this. But also the, the sort of... The food that you serve has been very true to itself over the years, I think. 
think we try to keep up with the times and we're, you know, we change the menu all the time seasonally. We're, we're definitely not trying to reinvent ourselves. I mean, if it ain't broke. Something that's interesting about you as a chef is that you have this very high profile and you're on TV and you're a nationally known figure, but you have one perfect restaurant. <laughs> I tried. I tried to have more, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> Well, I had Barque, which I opened in 2008. You know what happened in 2008. That was not um, a good year for anybody. Not a good year for anybody. Um, (laughs) I closed that. I remember you had a a rough few years. There was a fire and and Barque. Oh, God, it was awful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's why we got feng shui. And I was like, you know, why am I having so much bad luck? You brought in a feng shui expert. Well, (laughs) when we opened, reopened Anissa. Yeah. And and it wasn't my idea. You know, I just, I don't really believe in those things. But um, I was like, well... Can't Damn, hurt, I can't I hurt. After the so the there, so there was a fire at Anissa. And what year was that? That was also two thousand eight or two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Wow. Did you ever think for a second you're like we're not going to reopen this? Was that ever? Oh something? yeah, like because we were in our ninth year, mm-hmm. so we were running out of our lease. Our lease was ending, and there was no way I was going to rebuild it without a new lease. You're basically just giving it to the, the, the right. Yeah. So um, and we were just having a really hard time negotiating that, and at least three times where I was like, okay, well let's just pack up and mm-hmm. we'll do something else. At the very eleventh hour, we we got it signed and then reopened. That's great. Oh, I yeah. feel like when it reopened, it was like everybody rediscovered it and uh i feel like it was a critical everybody was talking about it once again you got re-reviewed a lot yeah 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 we got re-reviewed twice i was like ouch that's right yeah (laughs) wait Um, it was an ouch to get re-reviewed well no i mean we got re-reviewed once and and because it was like this huge build-up and i was working so hard so hard so hard and then we got the same you know star which which was fine um who was the times critic then was that bruni sifton right sifton Sifton. it was sifton sifton and then we got re-reviewed by pete wells uh, last year and that was scary because we just we missed him every single time i've ever been reviewed by the times i've known that oh for real yeah <laughs> except for pete yeah <laughs> is it that you don't know what he looks like or that you just sort of well we you know just like everybody else we had his picture on the wall but we were looking for someone taller and you know less you know i guess <laughs> Taller, and I guess he had a lot of facial hair now. I feel like there's something about him, the way that he not only looks, but acts in a restaurant that kind of he's a bit of a chameleon or something he's an everyman well i was the facial hair thing is funny i was talking to another restaurant critic a couple days ago um who will not be named who currently has a beard who says that he changes his facial hair all the time because it's his best disguise Uh against people spotting him right and he he, i mean you know if someone has a mustache or doesn't have a mustache i mean they're clearly the same person Mm -hmm. but he says like if he puts on his glasses or takes off his glasses or if he does a full beard or is clean shaven it's like He's he's totally transformed. And in restaurants where he knows he's been made, he can come back after shaving his beard and they're not going to have a clue. It's It's like we have facial hair blindness. So so when you guys got the call from the Times and then they're like, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to take the photos. Were you like, for real? Like again? Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I was so scared. And then we had to wait like a whole week to see what it was. I was like. Jesus. Do you remember the day, like what it was like waiting for the? It goes up on Tuesday nights before right. the paper comes out, right? right. So were you, was it Tuesday and you were just like leaping out of your skin, or yeah? <laughs> Did you have someone constantly refreshing the Times website? Yeah, and actually, um, Charlotte Druckmann was the first person <laughs> to let me know, actually, which was kind of great. And what did you who do? Was, who was my cookbook author? Yeah, we opened some champagne, of nice. course. 
<laughs> to dip back into your biography here for a second, something else I'm curious is how did you get involved with like Iron Chef? Oh, they came to me. I mean, oddly enough, the day that they came to eat at my restaurant, the um, executive producer, well, I was doing a corn menu. I'm not quite sure why, <laughs> but um, I was running a corn menu that month or that week. I'm not quite sure. This was like in 2001 or uh-huh. I don't remember. It was like five or seven courses that all had corn in them. And uh, Classic Iron Chef. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then they, they, they just called me in. Wow. So what was that experience like? It was so much fun. I mean, Mario is hysterical. He's mm-hmm. so smart and he's such a great entertainer. Did you know him at all before working on the show? Yeah, I mean, not well, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the neighborhood, he was a chef and owner at Poe, which was in my neighborhood. And yeah, I mean, the culinary world is pretty small. But yeah, we it was just fun. And, it you know, it's just one day, which is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the pantry is nice. And So yeah. what was your ingredient for that episode? Mushrooms. Mushrooms. I should have remembered that. That was, I think that was the very first episode of Iron Chef America I ever watched. Oh, okay. And I remember it it aired a lot in reruns too. And I was unemployed for a while. (laughs) I would watch it all the time. And I thought you were the coolest. I mean, I still mean, Iron Chef's a juggernaut. I feel like it was always on for a few years or maybe it still is. Are they still doing Iron Chef? Yeah, that was the first. That much anymore. That was the first season of Iron Chef America. Wow. And you won, right? Yes. Which is, I mean, this is very important. You defeated Mario Battaglia on national television, <laughs> making an entire menu of mushrooms, which then profoundly affected my life. Yeah. <laughs> Did that open up any other doors in sort of that showbiz world, you know? Um, probably. I, I, the Food Network had called me right when we opened Denise, and I, I just like, I, I don't have time. Mm-hmm. And for a series called Melting Pot or something like that. Great name for some kind of show. Yeah. And um, I just watched like, as all of my peers who had taken that on, you know, just their careers just rose. And I was like, oh, shit, I should have done that. <laughs> but then um, then we did this, and that was that was great. But it really saved the restaurant. We were not doing very well at that time. Hmm. Um, people were not coming to my restaurant. And it just it brought a whole new clientele in, and it was great. Wow. It's a way to put your food out there and yourself as a personality We've talked to chefs before who, who have mentioned that one of this, the sort of other edge of the double-edged sword that is TV celebrity is that like your persona can eclipse your cooking. And one of the great things about Iron Chef is that, you know, the persona is there and it's like you, your face on TV and you get to be funny and interesting and do your thing and work really hard. But it is just ultimately like, what are you cooking and how creative are you and how delicious is your food? I mean, I, I think it's harder for people who really have big personalities like Bobby Flay or, but... I'm not anywhere near that. (laughs) So, Anita, one of the things when you and I first had a a conversation a couple of years ago, I remember one of the things we bonded over was our mutual love for fishing. Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed. Yeah. (laughs) How did you get into fishing? Right before I opened Anissa, we had a lot of time on our hands. Um, Jennifer, who was my partner in life and also in the restaurant, um, were spending time in Ohio, in Cleveland, because you know her father was very ill, and so we just we just had a lot of time on her our, our hands. And one one day she was like, well, "Let's let's go fishing." We went went to Kmart and just bought some poles, <laughs> and we had no idea what we were doing. And we threw a line into Lake Erie, <laughs> which is very polluted. But there was a, there was a ton of pike there. Um, didn't catch anything, and and then just learned. I mean, I think my mother's boyfriend taught us how to cast, 
And then when we came back to New York, we started uh, going to Pier 40. <laughs> and Like uh, here in Manhattan? Right here in Manhattan, where I... Where, you know, we were parking our car, where I still park my car. Um, they, they actually have a fishing program there. Now, really? Where they give poles. Because there's a lot of fish in, in the Hudson River. And it's getting cleaner. <laughs> but, um, yeah. It's a process. Are you taking the fish and bringing it down to Anissa? No, 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 no. That would be <laughs> completely illegal. Um, I don't fish in the Hudson anymore. But back then, this is how we just spent our time. And it was this really great motley crew of people from all walks of life just fishing there. It was just really fun, and sometimes people would, you know, light up a barbecue. And have, <laughs> it was just so much fun. And I met Matt Umanoff, who owns the guitar store on. Oh yeah, on yeah, Bleecker, right? There, I met him at a um, at a vending machine. It was like a it was a bait <laughs> vending machine, which they had at Pier Forty. It was like you know, live bait. Live bait. You could buy worms and stuff like that. You know, you put in your dollar or whatever it was. Like, you know, when you go buy a Coke and, you know, press mm-hmm. it and it just comes down. Except it's worms instead yeah. of a Coke. <laughs> Love that. You helped me with that story. The um, Or I, I sent it to you. The uh, Oh, the story the that, about story. your skate. Oh, my God. Tell us this. Tell Greg the skate story. So <laughs> Jen, and I, Jen and I, this was before we opened Anissa. We drove out to Shinnecock Canal, which is in the middle of Long Island. We were trying to catch a striped bass and for <laughs> and they were everywhere they were just you know you, you could see they were chasing like herring or something up the up the canal and um we were throwing everything at them and nothing they wouldn't bite anything and then along comes this this cute skate <laughs> but and it's big but it's like cute and happy and it's just trying to eat everything and you know we're trying to like get it to eat our lures and it's trying it's totally trying but it um it just keeps missing so then Jen takes a, a treble hook, which is something that you throw into like pods of, of bait fish and, you know, you can snag them that way and then you can use that as, as bait. So she throws a treble hook at it, gets it hooked in its snout and tries to land it that way, but it breaks off because it's, it's like huge. It, it's maybe like an eight pound skate or something. Like that. And skates are really flat. So it's like two and a half, three feet wide. Probably, yeah, it's a, right? it's a ray. It's, so it's a big triangle with a tail. And so it just swims off, and there's some kids down the down at the end. They have a big net. Uh-huh. They basically just scoop this thing up and land it. And <laughs> we're, we go down, and we're like, well, can I have my treble cook back? You know, because <laughs> it's stuck in its nose. And they're like, oh, do you want the skate? And I was like, sure. You know, I love skate. I'll yeah, eat it. Delicious. Um, so we take it, and we we basically, like, cut in between its eyes, like a, maybe a four-inch gash. Whoa. Is this how you kill it? Is this like standard practice for? I don't know. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't know what <laughs> didn't we were doing. Didn't quite know what you were doing, but <laughs> yeah, this is when we were first starting to learn how to how to. Moving fish. on instinct, yeah. It's like a pretty yeah. good guess that if you stab something between its eyes, it will die. <laughs> so it, I stab between the eyes, and it, or no, it just, it's, uh, we, I don't remember what happened, but we're we're fishing some more, and um, we throw it in the trunk, and then right before we leave it, we look inside, and it's still moving around. So we take it out, cut another gash in between its its eyes like so it's got like you know it's like charles manson sort of like <laughs> cross in its head and you know and finally we're like okay we're not going to catch a, a striped bass throw it in throw it into this five gallon bucket and throw it in into the trunk of the car and then drive home it takes like three hours to get home because there's a lot of traffic mm-hmm. and you got to put the car away everything. right we get it up to my apartment 
you know, and we had stayed there, so it was like maybe four hours later. Yeah. The skate uh, has been out of the water for it hours should. and stabbed for four <laughs> hours. I have a feeling I know where this story's going, but uh, yes. Um, <laughs> it so was it's so been a long time that this has been dead, quote unquote. Quote unquote dead. It was so scary. I, and I'm not squeamish by any means, but I go to try to, to take the wing off, mm-hmm. and it literally seizes up six inches off of the cutting board and i'm like i scream <laughs> and we and, and and it doesn't fit in my refrigerator so i can't just leave it yet you've taken this creature from the deep and it's flopping around yeah. your kitchen refusing yeah. to let you kill it well to, as to is its prerogative its, i guess yeah like. to cut off its weight i couldn't cut off its weight it doesn't fit in my little ref- refrigerator so I, there's nothing i can do and I'm trying, and it, and it just keeps on moving. And we're, we're trying to hold it down with, like, a sharpening steel and while I cut. It just, and it just kept on seizing. And so finally we're like, I can't do this anymore. And we go and we watch TV for, like, you know, a couple hours. And we every once in a while we hear it, like, <laughs> Oh, my God. Like, it's still moving. And so finally we're like, we have to do this now because we can't just leave it on our kitchen. Whoa. We just can't do this finally get the wing off we finally get the wings off and um put the wings you know we don't fillet it we put it in the in the refrigerator and then we take the body like like i feel bad about the body because it's so much waste i'm like okay well we got to give this back to the the mother nature to mother nature so we we ride it down to the hudson river and just throw it over over Ah. the railing into the into the hudson river so that you know at least like some other fish or being can eat it down there and it can it's like that scene like in Goodfellas, the one that starts the movie with the guy in the trunk. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. And, we were, it, and 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 I was kind of worried that people were going to see us, like thinking that we were, you know, like disposing, like disposing of a body. Yeah. We, and we were disposing of a body. Were you scared that it was going to like pull a full Rasputin and like come crawling out of the river? <laughs> right. <laughs> and be like, "You take me from the deep. <laughs> I take you back with me." <laughs> Wow. But what, was it delicious? It was really delicious. And, and actually, when I went to fillet it the next day, the next morning, it was still sort of tingling around the back. Yeah. Oh. But it was like really light. Like, you know, it was just light and really sweet. And I got to say, the next time I have a skate wing, and I love skate wings, I, yeah. I think I'm forever now, I'm going to think of that story. Sorry. No. No, in um, a good way. And, and appreciate like, you it. You deserve yeah. this. Yeah. Freak to need a low out. I'm going to eat you. Yes. Um, wow. So at this point, how old is Anissa? I'm going to guess it's 13 years old now. 14? 14. 14. Yeah. It's bar mitzvah. So <laughs> you're happy. You're happy with the one restaurant now. Do you ever think about doing something else? You know, I love having the one thing. I, I would be interested in a, in another um, project. You know, I'm, I'm definitely interested in working on new ideas, or new something. ideas and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I I don't really want to do it on my own now. Yeah. I think um, I I wouldn't mind doing something with a you know a company that has a, a good track record and where I could you know I, I wouldn't have to be the operator. I you know the day to day operator that would be like yeah. you could be the ideas and the the execution, yeah. but somebody else would. Exactly, and then out. I could come yeah. in and just make sure that it's. Um, you could do the good parts. Exactly. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't want to be fixing the stove and calling yeah. it. Right. Well, that's the like the realities of running a restaurant are so, especially now that food culture has become so pervasive. There's so many people with these like beautiful fantasies of opening like the little bistro, and and then it turns out that you have to like 
you know, double as a stove repair guy and right. you know, <laughs> a nurse, a, <laughs> a psychotherapist, right. exactly. a heavy object lifter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be the dream, like getting yeah, to do we'll all say, the fun creative. And yeah, some people get to do it. So well, why not? Yeah. So before we wrap up, we have our lightning round for you. Okay. When you're on a road trip, what is your favorite song to blast in the car? Elton John. Any Elton John? Yeah. Is there a particular Elton John that will like uh, always get you to sing along? I think they all do. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love ballads. <laughs> ballads are good car music. What is your airport vice? Oh gosh. Well, you can eat better in airports now, but um, I I love hot dogs. I love I love McDonald's actually. What's your McDonald's order? I get the number one, which is the Big Mac, the Big Mac fries, Diet Coke, for some silly reason. You know, you know the number. I'm impressed. Yeah, well, it's number one. It's like right yeah, there. Well, I true. do it. I only do that maybe twice a year. That's yeah. good. I yeah. always think it's twice a year keeps you grounded. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. What's your favorite form of social media? Twitter. Well, I still have the, I still have the BlackBerry. Whoa! <laughs> Everyone makes fun of me. What's your Twitter handle? At Anitalo NYC. What is your favorite cocktail? Ooh, that's a hard one. Or drink, period. Um, I love a Pisco Sour. Oh, that's a good answer. Yeah. That's a really good answer. I think you might be the first person to not say a whiskey drink. Uh, I, haven't thought, about whiskey. A, I yeah. haven't thought about Pisco Sours in a long time, but it's about that time of the year. I'll put it that way. Yeah. You know? Peruvian food, I think, in general, is like the food and, and drink culture that is always about to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it gets melded in with some other thing. Like it's... Peruvian Asian fusion or something. Um, if you were not a chef, what would you be doing with your life? I, you know, I always say that I would would like to be a travel writer. That's another one of those dream jobs. That's cool. Yeah, cool. with a big trust fund. <laughs> yeah, travel writer with a trust fund. Yeah. I would like to be that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anita, thank you so much for coming by Eater Studio here today. And thank you for having me. It was great hearing your uh, your fishing stories. And like I said, I will never look at a skate wing again. The same <laughs> way again. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. On the next episode of the Eater Upsell, tune in for our conversation with one of the towering pillars of the New Orleans restaurant scene, John Besh. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to itunes.com slash eateruppsell. And as always, you can visit eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. <laughs>